Good evening. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter number 14. Genesis chapter 14. Good to have Dr. Milliken with us this evening. If you want to make a preacher nervous, just bring a seminary professor into the congregation. That'll help a lot. Genesis chapter 14. In our last message in the study of the book of Genesis on Abraham and Lot, we noted that the first 11 verses of chapter 14 are an account of a power struggle between two opposing coalitions of kingdoms. On one side are four Mesopotamian kings of the east, and on the other side is a second alliance of five southern kings in rebellion against those first four king, five kings. Included in this are the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. The end result was that the rebellion failed, and because the rebellion failed, Sodom and Gomorrah was sacked. Everything and everything, everyone that was there and could be carried off was carried off. Unfortunately for Lot and his family, they were also among those who were taken captive. Verse 13 begins with someone bringing Abraham the news that his nephew Lot and his family have been taken captive. Abraham saw it as his responsibility to help Lot. And so when the news reached him of Lot's capture, Abraham went off. After Lot, Abraham hastily assembled his forces and with his allies came up with a total of 318 men. He pursued the captors of Lot. He, he staged a surprise nighttime attack, and he was very successful. Everything was recovered, the people and the possessions. So Abraham, with a much smaller force, turned all the previous victories of the invading armies to nothing. And those who survived returned to their lands with little to show for all of their fighting. Well, now Abram heads back from his great victory and he is met by two kings, the king of Sodom, the king of Salem. Apparently the king of Sodom came up to him first, but before he could really begin to speak, the king of Salem arrives. Only after Abram has dealt with the king of Salem does he deal with the king of Sodom. There are two battles, really, in this chapter. Abram's battle with the foreign kings and his own battle with the temptation, tempting offer of kings of Sodom. Is this first victory in Abram's new relationship with God that we see tonight. Sadly, it is also a record of Lot's second chance. It's almost impossible for us to understand. He did not have to return to Sodom, but he did. He chose to do so. What we do know is that conflict often reveals character, but so does success. I personally believe that success has probably tripped up more people than trials have. When we are down, it's really not that hard to cry out to God for help, but when we are on top, it's kind of hard to remember how we got there. God was watching Abram to see if he would take the glory that belonged to him alone, to God alone, or that he would guard 
God's glory and not claim it for himself. I wonder how many times we can look and see that others have claimed credit that really <clears throat> belonged to God. Now the test came in the form of the two kings who came to greet Abram in his victorious return. First, Melchizedek, king of Salem, came and gave Abram a blessing from God Most High. And he reminded him he, it was God who had delivered his enemies into his hands. How gracious it is of God to send a messenger to assure Abram and to remind him that God himself had brought this unusual victory. And he goes on to say that it is indeed only a part of the blessing that God has promised Abram. Really, success is a grave danger to the heart of every child of God. Success is a severe moment of testing before God. We have to be very careful how we handle it. It's significant that we note that many a popular servant of God has fallen and lost their ministry because of exhibiting pride and taking the credit for what God has done. We read in <clears throat> Genesis chapter 14 and beginning in verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiveh, which is the king's valley after the return of the defeat of Chedorlaomer the kings of, and the kings who were with him. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tithe of all. And now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. We find in the Testament, a New Testament commentary of this passage in Genesis chapter 14. It's found in Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 1 through 4. I ask that you turn there for a moment. Hebrews 7, 1 through 4. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. I want you to note with me as we look at the story tonight, first of all, as Abram meets the king of Salem, Melchizedek. It says that Melchizedek was king of Salem, that he brought out bread and wine, that he was the priest of the God Most High. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tithe of all. <clears throat> if we look at the biblical story, we understand that the story or the account of Melchizedek is exceedingly brief. He is mentioned only three times 
in Scripture, in the biblical record. Here in Genesis 14, in Psalm 110, verse 4, and in Hebrews chapter number 7. There are two things that I want us to look at concerning Melchizedek. First of all, the identity of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, in my opinion, is one of the most intriguing and mysterious men in the Bible. He seems to come out of nowhere. We have no idea where Melchizedek came from, how he came to be in Canaan, how he came to be a worshiper and priest of the true God. We only know that he was there. We really don't even know his name. Melchizedek is probably a title, since it means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem, and Salem is the original Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Salim, the city of peace. Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God, we are told. The Hebrew, El Elyon, means highest God. He is a worshiper and priest of the true God, ruling over Jerusalem in those ancient of days. Now, the theories of Melchizedek's identity are many, and they are varied. Because of Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3, uh, describes Melchizedek as being without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Some have thought that Melchizedek is, uh, is actually a Christophany, that it is Christ appearing as a man before his birth in human form in Bethlehem. But the fact that Melchizedek was the king and priest of an earthly city makes that seem somewhat unlikely. The early church fathers thought perhaps that Melchizedek was an angel. The ancient Jewish interpretation, which was held also by Martin Luther, was that, that he was Shem, one of the sons of Noah. According to the figures in Genesis 11, Shem would have lived 35 years beyond the death of Moses. But because of the, the author of Hebrews states that his ancestors were unknown, and it would seem to preclude the possibility of that being his identity. Some of my favorites are, some have even fantasly speculated that Melchizedek is an outer space visitor, that he was uh, an unfallen Adam from an, another planet, seen sent to observe the progress of God's work of redemption for this fallen race. Now, I say that's a little bit far-fetched, don't you think? As Henry Moore says in his commentary, the question cannot be settled completely, otherwise the identity of Melchizedek would have been agreed upon by Bible scholars long ago. So you and I are probably not going to settle that issue tonight. It is probably best to assume that whatever his origins may have been, he was a remarkably righteous man in a corrupt and decadent life and time. But he was still, in my opinion, simply a man. But we can at the very least also say he was an extraordinary type or picture of Jesus. The second thing that we look at, not only the identity of Melchizedek, but the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, being a priest in Israel was totally dependent on genealogy. Every priest must be able to prove that he was of the tribe of Levi. According to the scripture, Jesus' human lineage was through the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And so Jesus would have had to be a different order of priest 
than Levi. Though Melchizedek seems like a rather obscure figure, he figures very importantly into the Old Testament. We know that even though Abram was one of the greatest men of faith in the Bible, that Melchizedek was greater. You say, well, how do you know that? I know it by the fact that it is proven that he blessed Abram. And according to Hebrews 7, 7, the lesser is blessed by the greater. He blessed Abram, and he received tithes from Abram. So Abram humbly accepted Melchizedek's blessing, and he offered him a tenth of his spoils. We know from Psalm 110 and from the book of Hebrews, the only other place in the Bible that Melchizedek is mentioned, that he was a type of Jesus Christ, and that he became a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we are forced to ask ourselves this question. What is it about Melchizedek as a priest that points to the superiority of Jesus' priesthood? Why is it important that Jesus be a priest in the order of Melchizedek rather than in the order of Aaron? Well, first, I think it's important that we note that Melchizedek was a priest and a king. He is the king of Salem, and he is the priest of the God Most High. History shows us that it is dangerous indeed to combine religious and civil authority. In fact, God had forbidden the kings of Israel to be priests and the priests to be king. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 26, King Uzziah tried to do the work of a priest, and God struck him down with leprosy because he did so. Melchizedek is an exception to that rule. When Jesus Christ returns, his second coming, he will also be a priest and a king. The second reason why Jesus is said to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek is that his priesthood is eternal. The sacrifices that were offered by the priest, all the descendants of Aaron, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, had to be continually repeated. But the sacrifices of Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, were once for all time, that Jesus made a sacrifice of himself for sin once for all time. Not only did the sacrifices have to be repeated, but the Levitical priests themselves all died and had to be replaced. And since Jesus will be our high priest forever. He had to be a different kind of priest than that seen in the Old Testament priesthood. Melchizedek, as a priest, does two things. He blesses Abraham and he blesses God. Melchizedek shows that a priest must connect between God and man and he has a ministry both to God and to man. The second thing that we see is Abram as he meets the king of Sodom. Verse 21, now the king of Sodom said to Abram, bring me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from the thread to a sandal strap, that I may not take anything that is yours, lest you would say, I've made made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. 
as would seem proper, at least to me, the king of Sodom wanted to reward Abram for all he did in recovering what was taken from the confederation of those five kings. And he offered Abram a tremendous amount of plunder. The king of Sodom offered Abram all the wealth that had been captured as his reward. And yet Abram did not take it. He did not take it because of a vow he had made to God. A vow that he would not take because he did not want any man to be able to say, I have made Abram rich. I think it's significant that Abram knew how men will sometimes boast, and he didn't want to give the, Sodom, the king of Sodom the opportunity to take any credit for what God had done in working through his life. And so Abram demanded all the credit go to God and God alone. There's a third meeting that I want you to see tonight, and that is that Abram, or Abraham, meets the king of heaven. Chapter 15, verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what shall you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring, and indeed one born in my house as my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. The result of this meeting was that God immediately revealed more of himself in two significant ways. First of all, he says to Abram, Do not be afraid, I am your shield. David also knew that protective power of God because he wrote in 2 Samuel 22 and verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You shall save me from violence. And secondly, he said to Abram, do not be afraid. I am your exceeding great reward. I get these little pictures in my mind about <clears throat> these biblical stories. And perhaps Abram is sitting in the darkness there, as sometimes we do after we've made a big momentous decision, and he's rethinking the whole thing. And he's asking himself, you know, maybe I wasn't so wise in turning down all of that plunder turning down that reward for defeating the kings and restoring those people. But God comes to him and in effect says to him, forget about those things and be concerned about me. To have God as our reward <clears throat> is to share in all that God has and all that God is. When we have the Lord, we have enough. And Abram's response was, <clears throat> Lord God, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless? Abram's response is seen by some as a lack of faith. But after all, Abram is 85 years old. 
And he has already been waiting 10 years for the fulfillment of that promise of an heir. I believe that Abram is correct in voicing his problem to God. Now, we all know that there are different ways in which we can ask God's questions, and not all of them are right. You can experience some great uh, disappointment in life and come in rebellion before God and almost literally shake your fist in God's face and say, why did you allow this to happen to me? Or you can come as a child and say, Father, I have a problem. I don't understand what's going on right here. Would you please help me to understand? And if you don't think that makes a difference, try it with your spouse sometime and see if it doesn't make a difference. I guarantee you the response will be different. Abram did the right thing. He laid the matter before God. He does believe that God will bring it to pass. He just doesn't see how. I think all of us can identify with that at times, believing that God is going to bring to pass what he has said, but not really seeing how all that is going to work out. In fact, Abraham, Abram is not expressing unbelief, but he's expressing belief. When Abram says, Lord God, he is literally saying, Adonai Jehovah, what will you provide? This is the first time that we are given Adonai as a name for God, and it literally means that Abram is recognizing God's lordship over him and over his life. He just wanted God to reassure him of his promises. And the Bible then says, And the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir. God repeats the promise. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever had to have anything repeated to you before, but it seems like the older I get, the more I have to have things repeated to me. God not only repeated the promise, but he clarified the promise. God expanded the promise. God then asked Abram to look into the night sky and he says, count the stars if you can. And he assured him, so shall your descendants be. The ultimate question in life is this. Do you believe God? Notice I did not say that the ultimate question was whether you believe in God Many people claim to believe in God. They believe that there has to be a God, in their opinion, but that fact doesn't mean much in the way that they live their lives. The real question is whether you believe God who makes those promises and whether you live by what God has promised. What is recorded next is of momentous importance. It says, and he believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Notice it does not merely say that Abram believed the promise, but that he believed the Lord. Those words are so important that they are repeated three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6, and James chapter 2 verse 23. Thus, by believing God, Abram put himself in God's hands, determined to rest on him and on his promise. This is the kind of faith that the New Testament recognizes as pleasing God. It is referred to as saving faith. In other words, Abram was saved by grace 
through faith, not by good works. There is no other way of salvation anywhere in the Bible. It was through the conflicts and battles that Abraham, or Abram, came to a deeper understanding of who God is and what God wants. It is also true in our lives that it is through the conflicts and the battles that we will come to a deeper understanding of who God is and what God wants in our lives. And the most important characteristic of all is faith. Not just belief in God. The real question, again, is not whether you believe in God, but whether you believe in the God who makes those promises and whether you live by what God has promised. Do you believe God, and does it make a difference in the way you live your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for... You're never...